Yeah, and just a reminder, uh, coming up this Thursday, uh, 7 to 9, is our prayer summit. Uh, prayer is one of the most important things we can be doing as a church, uh, praying together. And uh, we have a night of prayer and worship from 7 to 9 uh, this uh, Thursday night. All right, and today we're going to finish up our series on the Holy Spirit and revival. The last uh, few weeks we've been uh, looking at uh, revival throughout history and uh, the move of the Holy Spirit in different places in the world and uh, in the church. We've talked about repentance, we've talked about prayer, and we're going to talk today about uh, the presence of God uh, when it comes to revival. Uh, revival can be defined as uh, a community that is saturated with God, a community that is in love with God, that is uh, passionate for God, that is allowing the power of God to transform them in terms of their relationships with people and their marriages and in their community, uh, that God is uh, powerfully at work in, um, in uh, the community. And we want to be people who are saturated with God, uh, because the more we are saturated with God, uh, the more uh, life we give to each other and we give to our community and, and there is in our relationships. Uh, the more saturated we are in God, the more uh, the fruit of the Spirit Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness flows from us. The more we're saturated in God, uh, the more power of the Holy Spirit we have. I mean, we need this. And yet, as we've talked, a lot of times we can personally or corporately fall short of being saturated in the power of God. And revival is basically a time when, when we're kind of falling short of God's ideal we're not loving God as we should. We're not loving others maybe as we should. Revival is a time when we are brought back into God's ideal. We're brought back into that place of power and, uh, and we're revived. And this can happen to an individual. This can happen to a church. This can happen to a family. This can happen to a country. This can happen across the world as some revivals throughout history have actually spread across the whole world where communities and countries are radically transformed morally and spiritually, and uh, in their relationship with God. We've used this verse quite a bit. This, in, in some ways, is sort of the, the backdrop of how revival starts. Uh, any revival throughout history has this verse going on in the background. And God says, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And we've talked about the role of repentance in prayer and revival. Uh, that when we decide that I just want as much of God in my life, that if there is anything in my life that is keeping me from a, a deep, rich relationship with God, I want that out of there. Because you, when you begin to understand how much God loves you and how good He really is, and how uh, He is for you and not against you, that you don't want anything in your life in the way. And that causes you to turn from your sin and, and to, to turn your life over to Jesus. And, and we get, begin to pray and ask for more of God's move in our lives. This is what, throughout history, has uh, set the stage for revival. Uh, it was Dr. A.T. Pearson who said, There has never been a spiritual awakening or revival in any country or locality that did not begin in united prayer. And uh, if we want to see our lives change and our marriages change and relationships change and church change and community change, we need to be people who are praying. 
And this is why some of those things like the prayer summit and those kind of things that we do are really important to the life of, of, of each of us and our community. And so those are some of the things we have talked about. And today I want to talk about the last major theme of revival, and that is presence. You always see these three things in every revival throughout history. You see uh, re- repentance, you see prayer, and you see the presence of God in a very tangible way. And the presence of God can be very uh, important in the life and um, uh, ministry uh, of, of our lives. But let's just talk for a moment about omnipresence versus manifest presence, because sometimes people make a mistake on this. Uh, we know that God is omnipresent. That is, uh, God's whole being is present at every point and place. I mean, there is not a single spot you can go that God isn't there. You can go to Pluto. You can hide in your basement. You can uh, throw a blanket over your head. God is there. God is omnipresent. He is present every single place. There's not a place you can go where you can say, God's not here. God is there. He is omnipresent. As Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You can't. But there's another facet to this. And some people just end here, and if someone prays something like this, God, would you be with us today? They say, well, you shouldn't pray that kind of prayer, because God's already with you. Well, yes and no. In a sense, God is everywhere, yes, but there is also, theologically, what is known as God's manifest presence. That is when God uh, uh, displays, makes known, or demonstrates His presence. So every time we gather together as a church, God is here. But there are times when we gather together where we might say, wow, God was really here today. Now, God was there, of course, all the time, but God demonstrated His presence. He manifested His presence. Uh, Have you ever prayed a prayer like, God, would you be with us today? What you're asking for is God's manifest presence. God, would you be with me to bless? God, would you reveal your power in this moment? That's talking about God's manifest presence. Uh, or, or you've been somewhere, and again, you say, well, God really showed up in that conversation today. Well, God was always there, but we were talking about His, His manifest presence. So there's these omnipresent, God is there every time, but there are times when God reveals Himself, He shows up and blesses, He demonstrates His presence where we can tangibly feel it, sense it, uh, or experience it. And this can be really important in our lives because Sometimes what can happen in our Christianity is our Christianity simply ends up being an intellectual truth. And there's a big difference between believing something intellectually and believing it as real intellectually and actually experiencing that truth as real. And what a lot of people do is they end up living this sort of uh, very superficial Christian life or they've never really dived into Christianity because they only believe it intellectually. I believe God is real. I believe Jesus died for my sin. But they don't actually experience God as real in their lives. They experience their bills as real. (laughs) They experience their marriage as real. They experience their broken down car as real. But this experience of God at life daily is not existent. And it's why it's important that we learn to experience God, not just intellectually, but emotionally and physically Because God told us that we're to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This this is an entire uh, being kind of a thing. And when God shows up with His manifest presence, this is when we experience His truth as real. When all of a sudden you feel empowered to forgive somebody you couldn't before. 
when all of a sudden God uh, heals a sickness in your body, when you're praying by yourself or with a group of people and you can just sense the Holy Spirit in the room, uh, maybe when you, you actually get, sometimes feel the Holy Spirit in your body as heat or electricity or uh, just a weight or whatever it might be, there are lots of ways God will manifest His presence. Uh, I mean, every good gift and perfect gift is from above. I mean, this is when God reveals His presence. And we see this all throughout the Bible, obviously. Genesis 28. Uh, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he just had this vision of the stairway to heaven. He thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, of course, God was there no matter what. But what he's talking about is God manifested his presence to Jacob in that moment. Exodus 33, we see God using this language. Uh, My presence will go with you. Moses didn't say, well, duh, you're always with me, right? Again, there's nothing wrong with saying, God, would you be with me? God, would your presence go with me? Even God uses that language. Because what he's talking about is his manifest presence. He is saying to Moses, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be manifesting my blessing and my power as you move forth. Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so here we see Moses actually unable to actually go in the tabernacle because the presence of God was so strong upon that tabernacle that actually physically affected him. And sometimes God uh, will do that in our lives. We've looked a couple times at D.L. Moody in revival history. He's one of those uh, major revival characters. And he had this experience of God's manifest presence. Uh, He says, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day, I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. That he was so overwhelmed physically by God's love and emotionally that he actually said, say, God, would you stop? It's his manifest presence. And maybe you've had times, again, in worship, Or I was talking to someone last week who just driving often feels the Holy Spirit just physically in his body. Uh, God will manifest his presence in a lot of different ways. Uh, But this helps take this intellectual truth to a place where we actually experience God is real. Look at uh, some revivals. We've been looking at different revival stories, and here's some more. Uh, The Evangelical Revival of England, 1730 to 1750. England at this time was in real, real trouble, and it seems that most times that revival starts, it starts in places where there's a lot of moral and spiritual decline. And England was like that. One person said that England, uh, that their, the stomach was well alive, but the soul extinct. Still, William, William Blackstone, he traveled through as many churches in England as he could, and this was his report. I did not hear a single discourse which had more Christianity in it than the writings of Cicero. In other words, Jesus wasn't being preached, even in the churches. It was a place in moral and spiritual decline. Well, in this group was a uh, pastor named John Wesley. 
probably heard of him. If you don't, you should know him because he's one of the heroes of the faith. He was one of those pastors who was in moral and spiritual decline. In fact, he didn't even consider himself saved at this point. And he traveled to America to go do mission work, and he came back and he said, who is going to save me because I don't think I'm saved? And he meets up with a Moverian. Remember last week we talked about Moverians who started a prayer meeting 24 hours a day, seven days a week that lasted 100 years? Uh, we talked about that last week. Sent out 300 missionaries, changed the world, this prayer meeting. That's what prayer does. Prayer, as I say it often, changes the story. Well, those Moverians who were praying met up with John Wesley, and he knew he needed Jesus. And this is a little testimony. My heart felt strangely warmed. God manifested his presence. He actually felt the presence of God. I felt I did not trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins. And this guy became one of the most uh, dedicated preachers in history. This guy rode on horseback during his preaching ministry a quarter million miles on horseback. He preached over 40,000 sermons. That's more than one day uh, for every day of his life. I mean, many days he was preaching two, three, four sermons at a time because God used him to create a revival that radically changed England, completely changed England. Amazing revival stories. But what we see in this revival, as we do in all revival stories, and we're going to talk, some revivals have more, some have less, but God's manifest presence. And God shows up in a way that people don't just hear God intellectually through a message, but actually experience God as real. And here's some of his testimonies. About three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried out for exulting joy, and many fell to the ground. The, the power of the Spirit came on. Some cried out in joy, some fell to the ground. God showed up with His power and presence. Uh, another of His testimony, many of those that heard began to call upon God with strong cries and tears. Some sunk down, and there remained no strength in them. Others exceedingly trembled and quaked. Some were torn with kind of convulsive motion in every part of their bodies, and that so violently that often four or five persons could not hold one of them. And that may have been uh, a demon leaving. And uh, I know this kind of is weird for us in our Western world, but this is common in revivals, that, that demons will leave people, and sometimes demons can have incredible power in someone's body in a place that they have sort of supernatural power. We see that in the Gospels at times. And sometimes during revivals, demons will leave people, and you'll actually hear stories uh, like this. But God showing up in, in power upon this revival. George Whitfield, another guy you should know, uh, one of the most famous preachers, again, of history. Uh, he was a, a companion to Jonathan Wesley. And when Jonathan Wesley was telling George Whitfield about these things that were happening, and people were repenting and crying out, George was like a little weirded out, as maybe some of you are. So he sat down with John Wesley, and here's John Wesley's diary. He says, I had an opportunity to talk with George Whitfield of those outward signs which had so often accompanied the inward work of God. I found his objections were chiefly grounded on gross misinterpretations of matter of fact. But the next day he had an opportunity of informing himself better. For no sooner had he begun 
in the application of a sermon to invite sinners to believe in Christ, and four persons sunk down close to him. Almost at that same moment, one of them lay without sense or motion. A, sec a second trembled exceedingly. The third had strong convulsions all over his body, but made no noise unless by groans. The fourth, equally convulsed, called upon God with strong cries and tears. And you see these kind of things throughout revival history, where people are so convicted uh, by their lifestyle or their sin that they tremble, they'll fall to the ground, or they're so filled with exuberant joy because they found Christ that they just can't help themselves to shout out, or a demon might be leaving and they fall and shake, or all kinds of things happen throughout revival history. And whether this makes you uncomfortable or not, this is a fact of pretty much every revival throughout history. We see God manifesting His presence in revival meetings. Jonathan Edwards, this is the first great awakening in America. Jonathan Edwards is about as strict, reformed, Calvinistic as you could get, uh, if you know anything about Calvinism and reformed. But he was used in the first great awakening, completely transformed America. This guy actually uh, ended up being pre uh, president of Princeton University. Uh, he was brought at least 50,000 people to Jesus, more because a revival spread through him. He is known as one of the great theologians of church history. And when God was using him for revival, the same thing happened. Uh, God would show up, manifest himself, change marriages, change people's lives, give them power to repent, forgive people, bless others. Also, people would experience God even physically, just like in other revivals. Here's one of his uh, notes from one of his diaries. The affection, that is the presence of God, was quickly propagated throughout the room. Many of the young people and children that were professors appeared to be overcome with a sense of the greatness and glory of divine things and with admiration, love, joy, and praise and compassion to others that looked upon themselves as in a state of nature. And many others at the same time were overcome with distress about their sinful and miserable estate and condition so that the whole room was full of nothing but outcries, faintings, and the like. I mean, the power of God's so present uh, that some people couldn't even stand, were fainting and crying out that they need Jesus, and they want their life to be changed, and, and God moving powerful through. And this is about as strict, reformed preacher as you can get, Jonathan Edwards. But again, this is the story of revival. From the very beginning of Acts, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, and they begin speaking in tongues, and people say, these guys are drunk, all the way through revival history, uh, we see this. Another note from his diary, uh, the first great awakening that, that changed America. He says, it was a very frequent thing to see a house full of outcries, faintings, convulsions, and such like, both with distress and also with uh, admiration and joy. So all kinds of emotions. Uh, not everybody will experience the same emotion because even today, some of you may be in a more mourning state because you have had a different, difficult week or some of you here are more like, man, I, I need that cleansing in my life and you're more of a repentant state and some of you are like, man, I sense God and you're more joyous and, and revival, those are often amplified. It was pretty often so that there were some that were so affected and their bodies so overcome that they could not go home or obliged to stay all night where they were. 
uh, that they would stay in the church for the entire night, even though the meeting was over. And so uh, we see God moving, and, and it becomes not just an intellectual truth, but it becomes where these people actually experience God for real, in the physical, in emotional, in healing, in, in relationships. And it's one of the testimonies we also hear throughout revival is how many marriages are turned around. And how many relationships are fixed and blessed because God is moving and people are experiencing him as real. Another one from Jonathan Edwards, this reformed Calvinistic guy. Many in their religious affections have been uh, raised far beyond what they had ever been before. And there were some instances of persons lying in a sort of trance, remaining perhaps for a whole 24 hours motionless and with their senses locked up. But in the meantime, under strong imaginations, as though they went to heaven and had there a vision of glorious and delightful objects. And, and the testimonies that they write is how these events changed people for Jesus. And this swept throughout America in, in the first great awakening, which uh, brought hundreds of thousands of people to uh, Jesus. They may say, well, how does this work <laughs> with God's word? Well, we know that God's manifest presence can cause a physical reaction. I mean, again, if you've been a believer for some time, there have probably been times where you, you sense the Holy Spirit, you actually feel the Holy Spirit upon your emotions or in your life, or you, you feel that you've been supernaturally healed of something or supernaturally empowered to do something. God is not just something distant who never affects this world. He is very much involved in your life and very much involved in this world and our physical being. I mean, our heart is beating because of the grace of God to that point. But we see that God's manifest presence can sometimes affect physical. Acts 4, this is the prayer of the early church. Uh, Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders. They're, they're praying for God's manifest presence. Uh, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, they, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word boldly. Uh, God caused the room to physically shake. Uh, God's manifest presence sometimes can uh, cause physical things in our body or in a building or a church. Uh, for Samuel, the Spirit of God came even upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy all the way to Naoth. He tore off his clothes and lay naked. Don't ask me, it's weird. <laughs> uh, on the ground all day and all night, prophesying in the presence of Samuel, the people who were watching exclaimed, what is even Saul a prophet? So the Spirit of God comes on him, and he's like lying on the ground all day and all night. Revelation 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as throw dead. That could have been he did that on his own strength, or it may have been he's overwhelmed by the power of God. Uh, Ezekiel 1, the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell uh, face down. Uh, uh, John 18, when Jesus said, I am he, this whole group of people, uh, fell to the ground. Jesus didn't push them physically, but this is actually the presence of God that caused these people to fall. That's exactly what happened. Or Paul, at midday, O king, I saw along the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me. And those who journeyed with me, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, this was God's manifest presence. Uh, they didn't fall to the ground in their own strength. This was God, and he just, the people just lose all strength, and they fall down. Second Chronicles, the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the God. Uh, and so the presence of God sometimes can actually affect us physically. 
It can affect us emotionally. It can affect us intellectually. And this, again, whether you like it or not, is the testimony of revival throughout all history. We see this, this happening. And I know sometimes it can make us uncomfortable because we're like, this is kind of weird. I mean, but, but God does these kinds of things throughout history. Now, throughout revival, sometimes you'll see more of this in some revivals. Sometimes you'll see less of it. Because not every revival is the same. And one mistake that some people make is they think that every revival needs to look exactly the same. And so if they see a revival happening, well, it doesn't look like the kind of revival I think it should be. It must be false revival. There are actually, if you trace revival, about nine different faces of revival. Uh, there's only one major face, and that is Jesus. Any true revival will be about Jesus. Jesus will be preached. People will be worshiping Jesus, turning to Jesus, talking about Jesus. That's a true revival. Any revival where Jesus is not the center is off. But within that, there are sort of nine facets of revival. Uh, some are more of a repentance revival. Now, every revival has repentance. We've talked about that. But some like the Asbury revival we talked about last week, where for 24 hours a day, for a whole week, in Asbury College in 1970, the chapel service didn't end. It got fuller and fuller and fuller. The presence of God was so strong, but people would walk in, and just the presence was so strong that people would just give their life to Jesus. And they'd go up to the front, and they would testify how they've been delivered from whatever they were struggling with. It was, it was more of a repentance base. Some are more evangelism-based revivals. The Mulvarians, last week, a prayer meeting lasted 100 years, 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. They sent out 300 missionaries throughout that time. It was unheard of. But it was more of an evangelistic revival. Some revivals are more about worship. It's people just worshiping. They can't get enough, and they just want to put their, turn their face to Jesus and keep worshiping Jesus. Some are more deeper life. Some are spiritual warfare revivals. There's Holy Spirit revivals, and some of those may have more uh, the Holy Spirit working in manifestations. There's uh, reconciliation revivals. There's liberation revivals. There's prayer revivals. Not every revival looks the same. But throughout every revival, you will have repentance, You'll have prayer, and you'll have the presence of God in some way, and Jesus will be the center. That's how revival works. Another revival, and this is one of those ones, if you know church history, you need to know, because the Cane Ridge Revival, 1801, is a revival that actually changed North America, so much so that uh, the editor of Christian History Magazine said, this is one of the best recorded events in American history. Historian Paul Conkin said, arguably, this event is the most important religious gathering in all of American history. Dr. Stephen Nichols said, this is one of the most important events in American religious history, the Cane Ridge Revival. Kentucky is where this happened, was in such a state of moral and spiritual decline that even the president was trying to figure out what to do. The answer that changed everything around was this revival. This revival, there's other revivals going on, but this one spread across uh, America and it led to the first or the second great awakening. And it transformed America forever. It transformed uh, how people do church and live out their Christianity forever. A major important event. And it started in a little church. And this is why this is encouraging because a lot of the big revivals started in out of the nowhere places in little churches just like ours. So you never know what God's gonna do, right? Uh, but they had this little church service, and uh, the pastor after said, after the congregation was dismissed, the uh, solemnity increased. No person seemed to wish to go home. Hunger and sleep seemed to affect nobody. Eternal things were the vast concern. All of a sudden, God showed up, 
and people didn't want to go. We never know when that could happen. We could finish our service and God just shows up and, and we're just like, God, I want more. And, and you never know how God, sometimes God works in mysterious ways. But these people didn't want to go home. And again, this is the testimony of revival. We've talked about this. That people lose interest in other things and they're, they're just focused on Jesus. And, and, and this is what happened. So they decided to have a big outdoor meeting in Cambridge, Kentucky. And they did it outdoors. And over, uh, here's some artist renditions, uh, over 20,000 people came. This revival just exploded. Wherever you could find a stump or a tree, there were preachers from all different kinds of denomination churches that showed up there. Wherever there was a stump or a tree branch or something, there were preachers, like all these sermons going on at once because there are so many people. And all these little groups of people, and the Spirit of God swept through these people incredibly. Here's some of the testimonies. For more than half of a mile, I could see people on their knees before God. Uh, a cute one. One seven-year-old girl mounted on a man's shoulders and spoke wondrous words until she was completely fatigued. When she lay her head on uh, his as if to sleep, someone in the audience, audience suggested, oh, the poor thing. Uh, had been better, uh, suggested the poor thing had better be laid down to rest. The girl roused and said, don't call me poor, for Christ is my brother, God my father, and I have a kingdom to inherit, and therefore do not call me poor, for I am rich in the blood of the lamb. And, I mean, even affecting little kids. But this revival, the, the, this revival was known for God's manifest presence. Unlike a lot of other revivals, God's presence was so tangible that people would just show up and, and give their lives to Jesus. It was like what happened in, in the layman's prayer revival. We talked about that. How the God's presence was so powerful over New York. How this little group of seven people praying exploded into 10,000. The presence was so strong that there's a story of a ship just pulling up to harbor. And as the, even before the people got off, that they all ended up giving their lives to Jesus. Uh, just as the ship sh showed up. Uh, from a Christian History Magazine, this is about the Cambridge Revival. Along with the shouting and crying, some began falling. Some experienced only weakened knees or a light head, including Governor James uh, Gerard. Others fell but remained conscious or talkative. Uh, a few fell into a deep coma, displaying the symptoms of a grand mal seizure or a type of hysteria. Uh, though only a minority fell, some parts of the grounds were strewn like a battlefield. All these people on their knees or on the ground. I mean, the presence of God is sweeping through this group of people powerfully. Interesting story of James B. Finley. He showed up uh, because there are 20,000 people there. He was an atheist. Uh, he shows up because everybody's just like, well, I guess I gotta go. So everybody else, he shows up and here's his testimony. He, he writes this. The noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. I counted seven ministers all preaching at one time, some on stumps, others in wagons, and the one, uh, one the Reverend William Burke, now of Cincinnati, was standing on a tree which had, in falling, lodged against another. Some of the people were singing, others praying, some crying for mercy in the most uh, pietous accents while others were shouting most vociferously. While witnessing these scenes, a particular strange sensation such I had never felt before came over me. My heart beat tumultuously, my knees trembled, my lips quivered, and I felt as though I must fall to the ground. 
A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of mind they're collected. I became so weak and powerless that I found it necessary to sit down. And this is the atheist talking. Soon after, I, f- I left and went into the woods and there strove to rally up, uh, up and man up my courage because he's an atheist. God doesn't exist. This can't be happening. But he goes back. After some time, I returned to the scene of excitement and the waves of which, if possible, had risen still higher. The same awfulness, not as in bad, but as in awe, awful, that's what the word used to mean. A feeling came over me. I stepped up on to a log where I could have a better view of the surging sea of humanity. This is this mass of 20,000 people. The scene then presented itself to my mind. It was indescribable. At one time, I saw at least 500 swept down in a moment. This is this feeling that they couldn't even stand. And, and this revival ended when people ran out of provision supply. But this revival is why it's most, one of the most important religious events ever, because it swept across America. And this was the Second Great Awakening, and up to a million people uh, were given, their lives were given to Jesus through, the, as these people left Kentucky and went to all these places. But a lot of this had to do with people experiencing God as real. Not just intellectual, but they actually experienced God as real, and they go out, and America is completely changed. And of course, this guy, after this, he gives his life to Jesus and becomes a pastor. Uh, and, uh, and Charles Finney and some of these other guys are, are major names of the Second Great Awakening. But one thing to know, because some of this stuff is weird, uh, is that revival, it's just always controversial and messy. Uh, there has never been a, a revival in history that hasn't been controversial or hasn't been messy. And if you have a hard time with controversy and you have a hard time with mess, you're going to have a really hard time with any kind of revival. And the reason is, because wherever God is at work, Satan is at work. John 10 says that Jesus has come that they may have life, but the en- enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. Whenever you have a major revival happening and God is moving, the enemy is going to try to come in and destroy it. And he'll try to destroy that through pride. He'll try to store that through getting leaders to fall morally, which is one of the reasons some revivals have stopped or getting leaders to fight over one another, or sometimes when a a revival gets too organized, uh, a lot of reasons why it can end, or it gets too controversial, and people start fighting. It's It's just messy, because God is at work, and Satan is at work. And some people try to package revival in just simply a black and white way. A revival has to be all good, or it's all bad. It can't be a mix. But there isn't anything all good. Remember what Jesus said? There's only one good, and it's God. Uh, whenever you have a revival, Satan will be in there trying to do stuff and trying to mess stuff up and make, make things weird and try people fight. I mean, it is just messy and controversial. Revival is just, it's just not black and white. It, it's just not black and white. Both God and Satan are at work. We see this in John Wesley, the guy who preached the 40,000 sermons. Uh, again, the churches weren't preaching Jesus. He comes in trying to bring revival the controversy around John Wesley is crazy. They would send in bulls through his meetings. They would have people throw potatoes and, and, uh, and tomatoes and all kinds of things. But here's one of his testimonies. Uh, Sunday a.m., May 5th, preached at St. Anne's. Was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday, May 5th, preached at St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Uh, Sunday, May 12th, preached in St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Uh, May 19th, preached in somebody else's. You didn't remember Deacons called special meeting and said, I couldn't return. Uh, May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. May 26th, preached in a meadow, 
chased out of, uh, chased out of a meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. I uh, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday, June 2nd, afternoon, preached in a pasture. 10,000 came out to hear me. And this is a story of revival. You have these amazing meetings that are just packed with people, and then a church across the street is empty. Because they often, and often the rejection actually comes, sadly, from pastors and church leaders. And, and it's kind of the story. It's just controversial and messy. This is the hard thing when we're talking about revival. Revival, there are no clean revivals. And so if it ever does happen here, it'll probably be controversial, it'll probably be messy. It's just, it's kind of the, the way uh, it, it works. Now what about these strange experiences? You might be listening today, well, that's a lot of weird stuff going on. Well, a couple experts in uh, revival history uh, said this. Since most of these unusual phenomena occur more than once, what do we conclude? In other words, you see them throughout all revival history, sometimes more, sometimes less. We agree with several other writers who have concluded, when the divine is poured out into the human, expect the human to react in extraordinary ways. Some of these phenomena are prompted by God. At other times, they are just the exuberant expressions of those who are experiencing God's presence. And, in other words, people respond to emotion differently. I mean, you could throw a surprise party for me, I'd be like, yay. Uh, you could throw one for Dean, he'd be like, <laughs> I mean, you, you could throw one for, to someone else and they'd be like, whoa, yeah. I mean, we, just the emotional weight, we respond differently. And, and, and when revival sweeps and the presence of God starts moving, people respond differently, right? Uh, we have a word of caution to you as you read about different displays of emotions first. Don't seek the extraordinary signs of revival for these unusual expressions are not what revival is about. Revival is about Jesus. They may happen, but revival is about Jesus. Second, don't measure the success of a revival by the intensity or amount of extraordinary signs. You measure revival by Jesus. For when you do, you've missed the whole purpose of revival. Uh, but it seems that people who study, uh, people who had these experiences, that the effect is, is often good fruit. Uh, Dr. Margaret uh, Poloma, who did some research into these uh, experiences that people have with the presence of God, said this, that 92% of people who have fallen under the power of the Spirit testified to the fact that they were more in love with Jesus since the experience than they had been in their lives. 82 of people mentioned that they were more motivated and excited about sharing Jesus with family and friends more than ever before. And part of the reason is because when our faith is just intellectual and we're not experiencing, experiencing it as real, often there's a disconnect. It's when you begin to experience your faith as real that your life is really changed. I mean, it's like uh, a lot of people, we all know, eating tons of sugar and junk food is bad for us. We know that intellectually. But some people don't live by that until they go to the doctor and the doctor says you have diabetes and you have all these other health issues. All of a sudden, that intellectual truth becomes an experience that is felt for real, and their life has changed. And the same with our faith. We can have all the intellectual knowledge, but we need to be people who are allowing ourselves to experience our relationship with God for real, because again, often it's both of those in combination that transform our place. We need to be done. <laughs> Let's finish here. Uh, what about these strange experiences? Again, there's no black and white answer. Sometimes we love to cognitively box things. And we need to be cognitively mise uh, things, as it's called in psychology, where we take something and we want to quickly explain it away and put it in a box so we have mental energy for other things. 
But this, they're not black and white. We can't just explain them away. There are a lot of reasons. It might be the presence of God. God does call people, cause people to fall. He can cause them to shake. He can cause them to lie on the ground for 24 hours. I mean, we see that throughout revival history often. It might be conviction of sin. It might be people being filled with overwhelming joy. It might be an emotional response, a response to God's presence. It might be that they think that this is what they should do. Everybody else is doing it, so I should do it. I mean, it's coming out of their own initiative. And maybe they want to fit in and show off. I want to show everybody else that I have this too. It could be the work of the enemy. Uh, the Bible says that Satan can also do signs, miracles, and wonders. I mean, God can, Satan can. It may be that. It might be demons leaving. We see in Mark 9, and this happens in revival, the same thing. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. And you may see that in a revival, and it's because the demon is actually leaving. Uh, maybe other reasons. I mean, you don't know. Maybe they're shaking because they're cold. Uh, maybe they got a flu. Again, it might be the presence of God. It might be the old joke of the, the church down south where people were being filled with the Holy Spirit and one person started jumping up and down. They're like, yeah, you got the Holy Ghost. Another person jumps up and ooh, you got the Holy Ghost. And the third person is jumping up and down. And they go, you got the Holy Ghost. They're like, no, they got bees in my dress. I mean, <laughs> you just don't know. Uh, but throughout revival history, we see these and God can uh, affect the physical. The, the physical. Uh, last quote here. Uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Jack Deere said this. All fear of the devil is a rational fear. Now, we need to know he's powerful, but we don't fear the devil. No Christian should ever fear Satan or any demon. The only person a Christian is taught to fear in the New Testament is God himself. We fear God. We have a healthy respect for the power of Satan. We know he can deceive and do all kinds of things, but we don't fear Satan. If God is the cause of these manifestations, he will use them for good. If the devil is the cause of a particular manifestation, it can be stopped through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. In either case, we have no scriptural basis for fearing physical manifestations. Either they are from God, if they're not from God, we just take authority in Jesus Christ in that situation. If it's because they're cold or trying to fit in or all these other things, we don't know. But the point is, God, it, He can affect us physically at times. And if you're in prayer and you sense the, the presence of God or you are here and you, you begin to feel God at work or He begins to miraculously transform you, God does these kinds of things. But the biggest point of all this as we close our series on revival is let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the one who transforms our lives. He is the one who gives us power. He is the one who forgives us our sin. He is the one who makes us right with God and with others. He is the one we worship, and we love him. Let me call the worship team forward. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, that you are good. And God, we thank you for uh, revival throughout history. We thank you for how you've changed millions and millions of lives throughout uh, church history as revival falls. And God, we do pray, pray for revival upon this church and this area and this community. Uh, God, we need to be brought back into the normal Christian life, a life filled with the fruit of the Spirit, a life filled with passion for you and a passion for others, a, a life filled with power to love even our enemies. And so, God, would you bless us with strength? And we know, God, that whatever we're going through today, that your grace is enough to meet our need today. And we celebrate that in Jesus' name. Amen.